because anxiety is a normal state for a human at specific times in our lives or during specific events or triggers, right? I mean, it's, it's a survival mechanism. So there will be moments where our fight or flight response is being triggered either in a big way and we have an actual panic attack or just like in a pandemic, right? And we're all kind of feeling that low level static around that trigger, just kind of always being stimulated that if we try to get rid of that, it's not a goal. It's not a realistic goal because we want to have that as, like I said before, like as a survival mechanism. And then if we think that we've gotten there and it comes back, I feel like that can just make us spiral. Like, because then you're afraid of the anxiety rather than neutralizing it as not necessarily a negative thing. It's just something that's inside of me that is here to keep the species going, you know, to tell me when there's danger, it can be used in a very positive way. Now I actually use my anxiety really to guide me. It informs me. And so I feel like it's a positive thing. I call it my superpower now. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dachis-Marmette. We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Art of Living Well podcast. Before we jump into today's conversation, we have a quick announcement. We want you to save the date for our January liver detox, and this is going to kick off on Sunday, January 9th, and we're so excited because we created a brand new program to kick off 2022 feeling fabulous. Marty and I have coached so many people through this detox with amazing results and feedback. However, the one challenge for many people is keeping up with the good habits and healthy eating after the program ends which is why we decided to make this a 14-day program to help you transition back into a sustainable eating routine. So the first week will be the same as our prior programs. And then the second week, we'll start adding certain foods back into the diet while still doing the daily shakes. We have some exciting additions to the program, including everyone will receive a copy of an amazing new cookbook from one of our previous guests, Emily Maxson, who was on episode number 40. And you'll also get to hear from her directly during the program. And we're also creating an immunity boosting workshop and so many more videos and additions to our previous programs for those of you who have already done the detox. So give yourself the gift of health in 2022. We know this time of year, we're often buying gifts and spending money on others. And sometimes it's hard to justify spending money on ourselves, but We believe that the gift of health is always the best present that you can give to yourself and to your loved ones, especially given where we are with a pandemic and approaching the traditional cold and flu season. So we hope that you'll join us. Click the link in our show notes and of course, message us if you have any questions. And then finally, we would just love 
If you are enjoying this episode, if you could just take two minutes to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, it really helps us reach more people so that others can benefit from the information we share each week. And if you enjoy this episode today with Wendy, we'd love for you to forward it on to a friend, family member, neighbor, or anyone you think may benefit from this information. So excited to introduce today's guest, Wendy Tamis Robbins, who is an attorney, author, anxiety coach, and self-proclaimed professional panic attacker. After living with a variety of anxiety and panic disorders for almost 40 years, she is now anxiety-free. Not because she is completely free of anxiety, but because it no longer controls her. Wendy has traded living in resistance for building resistance. Her fears now fuel a life not only beyond anxiety, but beyond her dreams. She is passionate about helping others who are hiding their fear and anxiety behind perfectionism and overachievement find the same freedom that she has finally found. Despite her anxiety, Wendy earned a scholarship and worked her way through Dartmouth College, where she completed on the varsity track and field team and law school. She's worked as a tax and corporate finance attorney for over 20 years, creating and preserving affordable housing and providing sources of financing to underserved communities. Wendy's unique coaching draws from her personal experience while finding common and relatable ground. She utilizes practical thought and holistic mind-body work, cognitive behavioral techniques, and reparenting methods while keeping a sharp focus on the goal, which is imagining your most beautiful life beyond anxiety, believing it can be true, deciding you are worthy of it, and ultimately manifesting it. Our conversation with Wendy is so powerful. She opens up and shares her very personal and raw story and struggles with anxiety, which we know many of our listeners will relate to. We talk about her beautifully written book, The Box, An Invitation to Freedom from Anxiety, which is a quasi-autobiography. Wendy now uses her anxiety in a positive way to guide and empower herself. She uses it as a superpower and helps inspire and motivate others to do the same through her coaching program. Throughout this conversation, Wendy shares many of her tips and strategies that she has used to find the freedom from her anxiety. Wendy is on a mission to help end the stigma that continues to exist around mental illness, and she is helping so many people through her book and in her coaching business. We talk about meditation and how it's really been an amazing transformative tool for her, although like many people initially that this was something that she too struggled with. And there's just lots of techniques peppered in on how to deal with triggers that come up in your day-to-day life and really shifting from a growth mindset, from a fear mindset. We talk about some of the issues that she had throughout her life surrounding body image and eating disorders. It's really a very personal story. We know you're going to love it. So with that, let's jump right in to today's conversation with Wendy. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Good Health Sauna. It's time to relax, rejuvenate, and renew. Everybody wants to feel better. Everybody wants to be healthy and happy. Good Health Saunas is proud to provide top-of-the-line infrared saunas that deliver the most impactful results for overall health and wellness. Infrared saunas produce penetrating heat to help you sweat and heal your body from the inside. Sweating on a regular basis can help you feel amazing. Numerous studies have been done to show the power of infrared sauna use to help you sweat. 
Health benefits of regular sauna use may include detoxification, immune system support, muscle repair, chronic pain relief, relaxation, deeper sleep, and so much more. There are a lot of reasons people buy good health sauna. I just recently bought one at the Minnesota State Fair and I am loving it so far. From the moment of purchase to the delivery and setup, Good Health Sauna staff have been amazing. They answered all my questions and they did a fabulous job with the installation. I look forward to my new evening routine where I take a 30 to 40 minute sauna before I shower and go to bed. And I love how relaxed I feel and more importantly, how I am adding to my overall health and happiness. And best of all, it's a great way to remove toxins from my body daily. Good Health Sauna provides commercial-grade infrared saunas for in-home and commercial use. Backed up with the best warranty in the industry, lifetime guarantee, and unmatched customer service. They have three stores, one at the Mall of America in Minnesota, and two in Wisconsin, Appleton and Waukesha. For more information and to purchase online, go check out your special offer at www.goodhealthsaunas.com slash theartoflivingwell. Hi, Wendy. We are so excited to have you as a guest on our podcast today. We just love how the universe connects us with such amazing individuals like yourself. And we are thrilled to be able to share your story and how you help people who are struggling with anxiety with our audience today. So thank you for taking the time to come on our show. And you know, everyone has a story and we would love for you to share your journey about how you overcame your debilitating anxiety that was really keeping you from realizing your fullest potential and how you ultimately became an anxiety coach, leading corporate wellness programs, and most recently publishing your first book. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's great to be here. So my story starts with my first panic attack when I was six years old. And I know for most people that sounds like it's really young to start, but you know, 25% of our kids between the ages of 13 and 18 have anxiety disorders. So yeah, it started in a cardboard box. Actually, my parents had just bought a new refrigerator and I found that they put that box in the living room for the kids to play in. And I was really the only one in um, my family who took the bait. And I found that I was not so much playing in that box as escaping and hiding because outside of those walls was really a volatile household because of my mother's own untreated mental illness. And so I never knew what to expect. I never knew it was very it felt very chaotic, you know, because a child doesn't really know how to internalize or react to those situations. So when that box was thrown away, ultimately, a few months later, I really started constructing a mental box, like an emotional box inside of me, where as my anxiety grew, my hypervigilance, things like that, so did the the walls of that box. And so it just became a way that I started to deal with these anxious and intrusive, obsessive, compulsive thoughts that I was having at a very young age. So to hide all of that, all of that unraveling that I could feel going on inside, I adopted things like perfectionism and people pleasing and controlling my environment and hypervigilance and 
at first, of course, that really serves us well, right? Because I was a straight A student and I was a four sport all-star athlete and I got recruited to an Ivy League college, which was unheard of from the town that I lived in. So things on the outside seemed to be going very well. And it was until I hit you know, my first rock bottom my sophomore year in college when I was calling a suicide hotline. I had gotten so anxious that I fell into a depressive episode and really didn't know how to talk about it or find my way out. Ultimately, I pushed it away. I kept running, kept trying to achieve, figured, you know, once I got that big law firm job and my first husband and my first job and my first, uh, my first house and the dog and the whole picture that we think is this picture perfect life, right? I actually felt the worst I had ever felt. I hit another rock bottom that was even deeper than the first one and became agoraphobic and really didn't know how I would even hold down my job. So that was sort of when I had my first epiphany that this safe box, this safe place that I thought I had created was really a prison. And those walls had been closing in around me for years. And that's really where I decided to find my way out. But it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. You know, it was a lot of work, a lot of exposure therapy, meditation, and ultimately writing this book. It was really when I stopped running and started writing that I could do the, the work that needed to be done, go into my past and find the open wounds and heal all of that past trauma, give and receive forgiveness, things like that, and then learn how to not so much fear all of this anxiety, but to learn how to feel those emotions and move through them and really step into that life that was waiting for me on the other side of those walls that I had to learn how to dismantle. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like you've done so much great work on yourself over these years. I mean, it sounds like you've had some very traumatic experiences going on inside of you that you've had to really, you know, dig in and learn how to live your life a different way. I'm, I'm curious if when you were younger, like in high school or whatever, were you feeling that on the inside? Like, even though you're the straight A student and the four-star athlete and going to an Ivy league school, were you feeling like I'm at the top of my game? I've got this, I'm in control. Or were you feeling on the inside? Like, oh my gosh, I need help, but I don't know what to do. Or do you even remember? (laughs) Yeah, no, I remember clearly because high school was interestingly enough, the only time I did not really have anxiety. And I think that the more I talk to people who've had it for a very long time, there are periods where the anxiety subsides. And then other times it's like a roller coaster, um, even if it is at times very chronic. So I think that looking back, because it started so young and I remember feeling like in middle school, something's gone terribly wrong. Like I would have dissociative episodes for months where I couldn't really even concentrate on school or my friends or, and I didn't know what was happening. So I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to reach out, but then I learned how to push it away and and push it down so deep that I could really high school. I had so many distractions and they were, there was such positive feedback on a consistent basis around the academics and the athletics. And those were ways for me to metabolize any anxiety too, because now I talk about, you know, exercise and nutrition and all of that stuff as being 
some of the things in the holistic approach that I would take to, you know, deal with anxiety. Um, a lot of those things were part of my life in high school and the social aspect and the boyfriends and the, you know, you, you've got so much positive stimulation that that was like a four year grace period that I had from anxiety. And then when I went to Dartmouth, it was this huge identity crisis, right? Like I had come from a very working class town and felt like I had gone from the top of the the mountain that I was on this pedestal just to be kicked off so swiftly when I got to Dartmouth. And I think that's really, that was a huge trigger for me. So, you know, just a year and a half later, being at my first rock bottom, that's when I knew that I needed help. There's so much to unpack here. And I, you know, I'm not even sure where to start, but one thing I would like to kind of touch on is just going back into your childhood. Like you talk about having this first panic attack at the age of six and the trauma. And I know you share a lot of this in your book, which we'll dive into as well. Were there warning signs or red flags? Like, did your parents notice any behaviors? You know, back then, I think mental health just wasn't talked about. And I think we're kind of all around the same age. And I know specifically, I had a lot of, we had some mental health issues in my family, so I can relate. But did you get any help or support during that time? Or were you really just kind of on your own during some of those periods where you did have that heightened sense of anxiety? I was for the most part on my own when I would have panic attacks. My dad would take me. I remember the first one specifically. My dad, it was the dead of winter and we're in Massachusetts. It's freezing cold. And he took me outside and we stood under each. um, It was it was dark. We stood under each streetlight and we would just inhale and then hold our breath for 10 seconds and then exhale and then walk to the next light. And I could see my breath blowing out of my my mouth and in that night air. And, you know, it's such a poignant picture that I have in my head that he would sort of save me when it happened. But I've even talked to him recently, like, didn't you see something bigger going on here? What did you think about as a parent? And he said, well, we always hoped it was an isolated incident. And so the panic attack would come, it would have a beginning, a middle and an end. And then we would just move on. And you know, my mom's issues were really the focus of the family, keeping her stable and happy. And um, so I just sort of fell into the background and again, didn't know how to verbalize what was going on. So I was always trying to be the perfect child, keeping everybody comfortable and happy so that those, you know, chaotic episodes didn't come up. And so that hypervigilance and that perfectionism worked to my disadvantage because nobody saw me as a child who was struggling, essentially. So how did you finally like find the freedom from your anxiety? And I know it's been a long, hard journey, but we'd love to like start to unpack, you know, even some of the tools and techniques and methods that you've used. Yeah. So it started when, when I had that epiphany, I was with my first husband and I was in a hotel room in Utah. We were supposed to be learning how to ski me. He was prior us ski team skier. So we were on very opposite ends of the spectrum and I couldn't leave that hotel room. I couldn't risk looking foolish or being vulnerable or, and so he left without me. And I was sitting there in that hotel room crying on this beautiful winter day. And 
I turned around to those walls and I just saw it. I saw that prison. It was like somebody turned on a light and I had been so focused on the anxiety for so long and just trying to find external ways to alleviate all of the pressure and the fear and had never really seen the bigger picture that maybe it could come from inside of me because there was no more external validation or accomplishments that I could get at that point, right? Like I had sort of, that had run its course. So where was I really going to find the tools to get out of this prison that I was seeing now? And that started with first examining the people in my life. And so I left that marriage and really examining the relationships in my life and whether or not they were feeding the fire or they were helping me put out the flames, right? It was kind of one or the other. And then once I was single again, I started doing exposure therapy, not really formal with a psychiatrist. I just knew that I needed to start putting myself in specific situations that would provoke my anxiety so that I could retrain my brain to understand that I could live through it because I had catastrophized for so many years that I was building actual memories. Like my brain didn't understand the difference between, oh, I had thought I died when that happened so often that my brain actually thinks, you know, that's how dangerous that situation is when in reality, nothing actually happened. So I started traveling alone. Um, and just doing a lot of things that were outside of my comfort zone. So that's sort of like the first step is finding where those lines in the stand are that you've drawn and then taking small steps outside of that comfort zone, little by little to show yourself, reinforce that you can move through those negative emotions. There's no way back. There's no way around it. it ha- you have to sit in that fire and let it burn you to the ground and see what's left over. And it's you, it's you being more, you know, building more resilience. And it's really what's underneath all of that anxiety is, you know, your authentic self. So I did a lot of that. That was like 10 years and I was managing very well and had really stepped very far outside of my comfort zone. However, I was still accommodating anxiety on a daily basis in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot of a huge spectrum. So it was about six years ago that I finally said, well, is there any way to really just drop it, really find freedom where I'm not thinking about it on a daily basis. And I feel like I can do anything I want, regardless of the anxiety that it brings up in me. And that was when I started writing the book, because it was really, I knew I would have to write myself through that process, it would be very cathartic for me. And that was really when my meditation practice started. I got a meditation from Martha Beck, who is, you know, an amazing best-selling author, coach to Oprah, and got to talk to her on a conversation, um, a coaching call once. And she gave me this amazing meditation that's on my website called the, I called it um, Taming the Untamed Mind. And That really gave me a place to start to really let my anxious thoughts run in this meditation, which I thought there was no way I could ever meditate for decades. You know, I fired countless of psychiatrists for just mentioning meditation, like there's no way it's going to happen. It's not possible. 
So once I found like my entry drug into meditation, it became such a place of amazing transformative work for me and establishing that peace, like that I found below all of that anxiety that I could tap into during the day, whatever activity I was doing or wherever I was traveling on a plane, what have you, even when I wasn't meditating, I had cultivated this safe place for me inside of myself. So that was a big part of it too. And then other tips like techniques around being triggered with my stepchildren. That was a big trigger for me early on. Um, and when I'm, I still have panic attacks, like how to understand that you're not broken when these things happen, when triggers come up, when you're hyperventilating, these are biological responses that are supposed to happen in your body, right? It's a survival instinct that we need to have. And so we just need to ride out the flood of adrenaline and cortisol and all those stress hormones that are running through our body, making us feel extremely uncomfortable, but knowing that in 10 minutes, we will feel right again, you know, that will be settled down. So just understanding that instead of walking around feeling broken, feeling like we just need a diagnosis, there's got to be something wrong with us. That's a very different mind shift, you know, and it really shifts you into a growth mindset versus a fear mindset. I think that was a big part of it too. I mean, there was a lot of the, obviously it's a long time. There are a lot of things. And I think that the book does lay, lay out a lot of those around body image and there were eating disorders involved too. And just, they all get, it's such a ball of, you know, that you have to just unravel like one piece at a time. So, I mean, there's, it's not like I mentioned earlier, you've done so much work. You said, you know, it's spanned 10 plus years. I'm thinking about the stories that people tend to tell themselves and that can contribute to anxiety, right? Like we all come up with all kinds of stories in our head about situations or whatever. And I know for me, when I get into my head too much, you know, my heart can start beating just by my thoughts. And I'm wondering, you know, what were the stories that you were telling yourself? And it sounds like, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. You kind of used meditation to learn how to combat that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest ones that come up for me right now are around body image and relationships. I always felt very confident in my professional life. Um, of course, being a, a female in a large law firm, there's, you know, there's stuff there, of course, but I think the biggest stories that gave me anxiety were really around that perfectionism that is put on women culturally. And so I really did. There was a lot of destructive perfectionism that went on for me around body image and around eating and eating too much would give me anxiety. Eating not enough would give me anxiety. Reaching my goal weight would give me more anxiety than gaining 10 pounds. And so that was such a tangled web that I needed to deal with because you just feel like you're being ripped apart at the seams, right? There's no, there's no real goal if it's all just causing anxiety. And I think that ties to romantic relationships too. Like I really felt like I was replaceable, always replaceable. There's because there's always somebody prettier, somebody smarter, somebody more interesting, somebody. So not, not having that self-love 
So maybe that's where all of those stories stem from, because I feel like I was always looking for the like external love and was not loving myself. And so a lot of those patterns and stories become destructive, right? Ultimately creating all of this anxiety. But when I unpacked all of that and learned how to love myself first, that was the foundation upon which I could build all of these other things and understand what had been going on for so long. And now, you know, those cultural impositions don't really, they don't affect me like they used to. You feel really sort of impervious to that. None of us are impervious to mental health issues, of course, but you can be impervious to repeating those stories in your head all of the time and writing a new one. I think that's so powerful. And I think this spans across people who do have anxiety and those who don't when it comes to the stories that we tell ourselves. And especially just that self-love. Like, how did you start to cultivate and have that love for yourself so that you didn't have, you know, the, the thoughts about the body image? And you talk a lot about this in your book and just, you know, even how when you're, you talk, say, you say when, when your thighs shrink or, you know, when you lost weight, your anxiety actually grew. So that, that the true, you know, what you thought was the source of your, you know, anxiety or unhappiness really wasn't, you know, right. it really wasn't the source. Right. It had nothing to do with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was a simple equation that if my, my thighs shrank, my anxiety would shrink. Yeah. It seemed pretty basic, but <laughs> it, that equation didn't work out at all. It was really when I started going into meditations and revisiting that girl in the box. It was this epiphany that I had at the beginning of the journey that I knew I was going to have to take to see if I could find freedom from this anxiety. And this little girl just showed up in one of these meditations. And it was like, I was standing there presented with myself, my traumatized child self. And all I could feel was love for her. Like she was standing there telling, you know, telling me that she was trying to control everything because she was trying to save me, right? This was the part of myself that was so desperately building those walls to create this safe place. And I just suddenly had this overwhelming sense of compassion for this little girl but ultimately it was for myself, right? So then I started looking at other areas in my past that were open wounds that were still, I still had anxious feelings about and going back and sitting with her and asking her what she needed and really reparenting myself. And I didn't even know that I was doing it at the time, but now looking back and listening to more and learning more about it, that's essentially what I was doing. And that is really where, I, I sort of exercised that muscle. It was almost becoming the observer of what had happened to me where I could feel, because I think a lot of people feel like, well, I'm imperfect and how could I love myself? I know all the stuff that I've done. And we don't realize that we love other people who are imperfect, of course, as well. So we just find it harder for whatever reason to love ourselves. But when we can sort of take that step back and maybe that's how I got there was being the observer of what had happened to this little girl rather than completely identifying with it. So taking care of myself like a parent would or a loved one would. And then once I brought it all forward, I could cultivate it, you know, as an adult. Wow. That's like very impressive, deep work that you've done. 
And, you know, just talking about anxiety in general, I mean, I know there's like startling statistics, you know, you talk about them in the book, but just for our audience, that anxiety disorders are, you know, the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting more than 40 million adults, 18 and older. And that's before factoring in the anxiety that spread during the pandemic. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about anxiety, especially related to the pandemic kind of early on, on this podcast, but just would love your thoughts, you know, given how many years you spent living with such debilitating anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders, why do you believe these numbers are so high, especially in women? I think that currently it's, I have to say this, somebody the other day was, I was just talking to somebody about this and they said, well, I think women are confused. (laughs) I said, I I don't know. Yes, of course we are. I don't think we're confused. I think that we're without the resources that we need to support the extraordinary expectations and opportunities that we have on us in this, you know, in this modern world that we have now, like, yes, we have all these amazing opportunities, we want to be able to be in the boardroom and, you know, do whatever we want with our lives. And that's amazing. But with that, I think need we need support networks that have not been put in place. I think that our opportunities have come quicker than the support networks that we need as, you know, networks among professional women or networks among women who are mothers and professionals or all of these things. And it there's also this inherent like lack and attack feel with women where there's a lot of infighting. And because, you know, we know that when we walk into a boardroom and there's 10 seats, there's only two for women. And so we're always feeling like there's not enough of the pie to go around. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I think that's a very difficult place to be when you're a woman and trying to do it all, right? There's still all of that pressure for us to be the primary caregiver at home and to carry all of those to-do lists and keep all those balls in the air. And things have just not balanced out as quickly as, like I said, all of those opportunities have come. And um, I think that that just creates a ton of anxiety because we have huge expectations for ourselves, right? We know how amazing we are already. And we're just like, well, I don't see the universe really. (laughs) It'd be great to to think the universe is just going to open up and like, you know, provide me all the support that I need. But I mean, I don't think that's the reality of the situation when it comes to finances or relationships or child rearing, or uh, even I just looked at recent numbers that came out around females in the legal industry in the United States and, you know, female partners are still around 24% of, of equity partners in the United States are, are women and women of color. It's like 7% and people, you know, law firms have taken pledges to make conscious efforts to change these statistics. And we've made like feeble progress in those areas. So I think that's really where a lot of the anxiety is generated and uh, for women, especially, you know, depression and suicide, those numbers are higher for men generally. And that's like a whole different conversation. And I can understand that as well. I don't want to sound like I don't support the fact that there's a lot of mental health issues that go on with men as well. And it's also lack of support or just culturally, they're not allowed to talk about their emotions and 
But then on the flip side, if women talk about their emotions, they're labeled emotional and not competent for the boardroom. And so it's just kind of a mess, which is why I really, my mission is to bring this out of the, of the shadows and shine some light on it so that we can end the stigma around mental health and talk about it in the same way that we talk about physical health. There should really be no difference. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And with that, I think we should dive into your book and talk more about it. The box, an invitation to freedom from anxiety is the title, um, which you describe as a quasi autobiography. Um, So what kind of led you, I know we touched upon this a little bit earlier, but what really led you to want to, you know, write the book and share your story with everyone and outline ways that other people that are feeling some of the things that you felt can kind of start to address that? And what was this process like for you? The process was really cathartic. Um, I started it Uh, as I mentioned before, really just as a way to save my life, my life, not anybody else's. Um, And I knew that maybe it would be a book on my shelf at some point, but that I needed to, I couldn't reconcile the person that I was with all of the anxiety that was going on inside of me, right? Those two things didn't make sense. So I felt like hopefully by the end of the book, if I had found freedom, then I would understand what was going on. I talk about in the book at the beginning, like all of my thoughts and emotions and accomplishments and everything in my life was like all of these stars sprayed across the sky, but all I saw was chaos. And I just needed to do something. I needed to go through this process to just see those stars get connected and finally see this constellation right at the end so that it all made sense. So that was the personal process for me. But about halfway through, when I realized that I was really starting to find freedom and I was understanding where all of the bricks in these walls had come from, and it was just one epiphany after another. And I was forming that relationship with that little girl, right? Myself and and cultivating that self-love. I was, I was picturing that 18 year old girl that I was in that law student that I was in that, and they were real people for me. And I was like, I, if I can see this process unfolding that I've gone through to save myself, how can I leave them behind? What if I have this book and one person reads it one girl that's, you know, graduating from law school and dropping off the edge of a cliff. Like I did, what if she reads this book and it helps her change the trajectory of her life in a way that, God, I wish I had when I was that age. So it's really about, um, it's like my, my love letter to them, or it's kind of to myself in a way, but it's really to all of these other people who may be feeling the same way, who, if I could just save them one month of feeling, you know, this desperation, then that would all be worth it. Well, it's such a beautifully written book, Wendy. I mean, honestly, I'm loving it. I have like maybe like 50 pages left and I've been like reading it at night and staying up late. Um, and I love all of the like, metaphors and analogies that you use. It's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful to read. And so thank you for just sharing your very real raw story with everyone. Um, and one of the things you mentioned in the book is just that the goal with anxiety isn't to get rid of it, but to reduce it and manage it so that it's not controlling your life. And I just loved how you reframed it. Cause I think with anxiety and, you know, 
I will, I have suffered from a little bit of anxiety, not nearly to the extent, but I always kind of say, oh, I run a little anxious, but that was then. And this is now, and now I'm better. And I'm like, well, no, I still think once you're sort of in that mindset, you, maybe you always have anxiety and it's just like you said, learning to manage it. So can you maybe unpack that a little bit? Yeah. I think that because anxiety is um, a normal state for a human at specific times in our lives or during specific events or triggers, right? I mean, it's, it's a survival mechanism. So there will be moments where our fight or flight response is being triggered either in a big way and we have an actual panic attack or just like in a pandemic, right? And we're all kind of feeling that low level um, static around that trigger just kind of always being stimulated. Um, that if we try to get rid of that, it's not a goal. It's not a realistic goal because we want to have that as, like I said before, like as a um, survival mechanism. And then if we think that we've gotten there and it comes back, I feel like that can just make a spiral. Like, because then you're afraid of the anxiety rather than neutralizing it as not necessarily a negative thing. It's just something that's inside of me that is here to keep the species going, you know, to tell me when there's danger, it can be used in a very positive way. Now I actually use my anxiety really to guide me. It informs me. And so I feel like it's a positive thing. I call it my superpower now. And you know, that's really flipping it on its head because once you're not afraid of it anymore and you see it in more of a positive light, then I think that the goal is not then to be afraid of, you know, get rid of it because you're afraid of it. The goal is then to just sort of notice it, ask it why it's here, look at your environment. Maybe, you know, there's certain things in your life that you're not prioritizing your wellness in that moment or, there is something to be afraid of and you need to kind of pivot or reevaluate or so that's why I think it can be used as something to inform you and guide you. So that's interesting. And based on your personal experience, then, you know, you said the traditional therapy didn't work and I can totally understand why (laughs) that would be difficult. Um, What about the link between our physical health and our anxiety? Did you find other ways, like maybe with the use of healthy foods or movement or exercise or just lifestyle changes that helped you reduce your anxiety? Yeah, it was all a huge part of it. It's even with my one-on-one coaching, it starts with a questionnaire so that we can be as holistic in treating it as possible. My eating disorders fed off of my anxiety disorders. And, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, pull those two apart because they really feed off of each other. So the deeper I got into um, just having poor diet because I wanted to look a certain way and drink a lot of caffeine and um, self-medicate with alcohol, things like that. Those are all unfortunately feeding into, yeah, feeding into the anxiety triggers. And then I think physical health too, it can be, um, anxiety is so physically debilitating or can be that I think people probably who haven't suffered don't realize how physically debilitating it can be. But 
for me going from a division one um, athlete to not being able to walk through a grocery store without being held up by the, the carriage uh, was mentally destabilizing, right? Because then you're like, well, who am I without my physical abilities? So I think that it's important to recognize that that's part of it, but also make sure that we keep moving and metabolizing all of that anxiety inside of us so that there's like a place to burn it off as much as we possibly can. And then yoga for me was a huge mind body connection that I had a really difficult time early on, even staying in a class without having a panic attack. And once I just, I just set my mind to, even if you're not doing yoga, you will just sit through the anxiety on this mat until the end of class and that's it. And then progressively each time I could do more and more. And then the benefits that I found when I could actually make it through an entire class were really transformative. I'm a really big proponent of yoga and how much that balances our mind and our body. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because Stephanie and I both have been through um, yoga teacher certifications and trainings and I, I would agree with you. I think yoga has changed my life in so many ways, in so many positive ways. And when I try and explain that to other people, Mm -hmm. you know, people just, a lot of people still today think of that physical practice or the workout, but there's, it's, there's just so much more to it. It's hard to explain. There's even this cool thing. I wish, um, if you Google, uh, yoga positions, and like stress reduction, each position, I thought it was sort of like a workout too. Like you do bridge, right? And you think, oh, this is going to give me a great ass. Well, bridge is about stimulating these certain nerves that are in your spinal cord, right? That creates this response in your body in your lymphatic system. And each pose has this specific benefit tied to it. And that's why it's thousands of years old, right? It wasn't just this like workout that we just made up in like with Jane Fonda or something like there's real science behind it. And I think that's why the more you do it, right. We find that there's like this, like almost like transcendental thing that's going on. That's like beyond any other workout that you really have. Well, probably like marathoners probably get those highs that feel sort of, and if you never get there, you kind of never get it. But yeah, it's, it's just so amazing. Yeah. And I hope that I know for some people, it's probably like anxiety, just thinking about going to a studio and being on a mat, but maybe that's another sort of silver lining of the pandemic that yoga is just more accessible for people. So hopefully this will help with others who are, you know, battling, battling with anxiety. And yeah, I completely agree. And we can like find something and include it in the show notes about yoga positions and stress reduction. Because that's one thing that I really learned in my program, you know, and going through different energy centers of your body and all that. It's, it's not just about doing some really hard, challenging physical poses on the mat, but it's what that's doing for your, your body and your mental state. And even if it's laying on your mat, you know, just laying on your back on your mat with your eyes closed, like there's benefits to that. Yeah, absolutely. And also on my mat, I remember thinking, and it was around, um, I was doing work. Well, I was on my journey, so I was doing work on all of it, but it was really around body image. And I would go in and just start to laugh out loud sometimes at how negative and critical my inner voice was 
in a in a class in a yoga class like because there's always somebody who's a crazy yoga pretzel that's better than you right she's doing headstands already you're not even warmed up yet you're like oh my god and then there's somebody else who's fallen asleep next to you who doesn't do anything until the bell rings at the end and then but it was really i remember at the beginning just examining my thoughts throughout like how negative can you possibly be you're just trying to do yoga and then really trying to change those thoughts and create a completely different narrative for myself like as i got better it was almost safer for me to pull back and decide what was good for me and my body that day you know and so then my they talk about like your mat almost being like this safe place right and it really really created that for me that I could then take outside of the yoga studio. It became like I was really loving and protecting myself. And a lot of that I learned in, in those yoga classes because I brought in such a competitive, ridiculously competitive attitude to yoga. I think probably a lot of people do. Uh, yes, I think they do. I mean, it took me years to let go of that. Yeah. So Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about how you work with your one-on-one clients? Because I think you're also still practicing law as well. Okay, so you're you're doing a lot. (laughs) I get one-on-one clients from people who have just maybe one thing that's triggering them, like, um, you know, whether it's a family situation or maybe some it's a variety. It can be a variety of things where we just work on that one trigger for maybe one or two sessions. And then I have others that, and it's more common than not, that it's more like a, a three month commitment that they make to, because they've either read the book or they've seen my work online where they really want to dig in and kind of go through that process similar to the one that I went through in the book because they're in a place where they, again, are having a hard time. A lot of them are high performing, you know, they had this amazing resume and they're like, burn it to the ground because I just don't even want to leave my apartment right now. I just can't even function, you know, well enough. And so they can't reconcile those two and they're just looking for a way out. And so I come in and help them identify those walls like where where did it start was there trauma was there a specific thing that happened um and then starting to understand what those walls are made of you know are they is it like me like is there body are there body image issues are there relationship issues are there um expect unrealistic expectations um assumptions you're making anything what's really the mortar that's holding that those walls together and then what it's going to what it's going to take to really start to dismantle them so that you can really unpack and untangle all of that and then really from the very beginning creating this image of what your life looks like what do you think is waiting for you on the other side of those walls right because as you start to break those walls down and you see those cracks and the light starts shining through that's where you pick up that momentum, right? Because you have that image already. And I love the idea of future selfing. Um, I'm a big fan of it. And I love starting the sessions, like the very first session, doing a meditation on future selfing, just to create that biggest, most beautiful life you can imagine without anxiety. And then, you know, going through that process to step into that. 
Mm, that sounds amazing. I mean, I'm sure you're helping so many, so many people out there. So as we start to wrap up this conversation, we'd love to leave our listeners with some practical tips that they can implement into their life immediately. And we know that many people who are suffering with anxiety, you know, whether it's a mild case or more debilitating symptoms like yourself could use, you know, just your top suggestions easily implement into their life, you know, today or this week. I think exercise and exercising outside for sure is number probably, you know, the easiest thing that people can implement now. And I think um, it goes uh, probably without saying, but, and then meditation. And so if you feel like you can't meditate because I've been there, I was there for decades. um, I would really invite you to go to my website and um, find the meditation called taming the anxious mind. And I just think it's amazing or find whatever meditation. There's so many websites that start you off small, you know, just a few minutes. And I would encourage you to find a guided meditation because I think people with anxiety have a very difficult time shutting off their thoughts or even thinking about going inside their mind because they're having scary thoughts. Um, So find a guided meditation that will keep your mind active, but will release the tension, give you, give you some separation from all of that, you know, that anxious thinking. Um, Also, I would say I love bursting the bubble. I think that when we start to feel like there's something wrong in our mind, it's a terrifying thought. And we really try and hold on tight and control it ourselves or push it away. And pushing it away is like trying to keep a beach ball under the water, right? We're going to use all the energy we have to keep it down. And ultimately it's going to spring back to the surface and it's just going to take more energy over time. So I think that if we just start to, I was always so afraid of even saying the words out loud, like it would make it real somehow, you know, just start journaling about it so that you can see your feelings, your thoughts on paper and maybe look at them as an objective observer and find somebody, a confident who, a confidant that you trust, start saying it out loud and talking about it. And I think that it's, it's sort of like shame. It's like the more that we name it and we put it out there, the more that we can start to take back our power and see it in a different light. Like I'm saying, like as the observer, as the observer, as the watcher and start to gain some separation from it. And then there's, you know, in the moment, if we're triggered, if we're really feeling out physically out of control, there's grounding techniques like the five, four, three, two, one technique that I love. Um, you know, you can just Google that and that's pretty easy, but also just picking one of your senses and really immersing yourself in something for 10 seconds at a time that really shifts us out of that fight or flight mode and into our right brain where we can start to feel more comforting, calming feelings. Um, So yeah, those are a few. Those are great suggestions. Thank you. Um, And I love that people can just implement a lot of those right away. So Wendy, where can people find you? Um, How can they work with you? And um, we'll, of course, link it all up in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. Um, Everything is really on my website, which is Wendy Tamis, T-A-M-I-S, Robbins with two Bs.com. Also prettypanicked.com will take you to my website. And that's, um, that's the name of the podcast that I'm hoping to launch in 2000, 
22. So look out for that. Um, and yeah, so on there, you can find more about my book, The Box, that um, actually became an Amazon bestseller in four categories in August. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. So um, you can buy it there through a local bookstore um, or through, you know, I have them all linked there. And then also my one-on-one coaching is on there. Some descriptions of the packages that I offer. And then also I'm doing corporate wellness programs, which are really, um, I'm loving that. Uh, A lot of them for law firms where CLE credit is available for them. And it's just a great way for me to, um, you know, talk to a lot of people at one time, one hour. Um, So that's been really great. So that's also linked on my website. And yeah, and then I'm on, of course, social media. So Instagram, I love meeting women on Instagram. That's where I first discovered you all. Um, So I'd love for people to reach out to me on Instagram and just, you know, send me a DM and start a conversations. I think that especially with women over the pandemic, it's been, I formed so many great relationships on there. It's been really great. And, you know, you're doing so much good out there. I just want to like acknowledge that, that you're really helping so many people. And I actually remember some part of the book where you were, I don't know, it was like you were talking to a guy and he was kind of like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Or what do you want to get out of college? And you went on and had this whole really eloquent and profound statement about what you wanted to get out of school and what kind of person you wanted to be. And he was like, yeah, I just want to play hockey play hockey or play football. Yeah. Yes. And so clearly this fire and passion and drive to help so many people has been with you probably your entire life. And I love just seeing it all manifest right now with your book and all the work you're doing. So thanks so much. I appreciate that. So as we wrap up this um, conversation, Wendy, one question we like to ask all of our guests is what does the art of living well mean to you? To me, it really means reducing the volume on our anxiety so that we can amplify our authentic voice. Those are my brush strokes, really, in in my art of living well. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love how succinct you just said that. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Wendy. We love having you and we're excited for everyone to go out there, buy buy this book and read it. It's just a beautifully written, you know, kind of autobiography memoir of your life and how you're, how you're able to help others. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well.